Hello, and welcome to the first Clock Tower recap. This video will explain everything you need to know about the events of our story arc through the mirror, which consists of episodes one through episode five. I'm your host and dungeon master, Elenthris, but you can call me Ellie. Make sure to stick around till the end of the video for a special announcement from our cast. But first, Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game owned by Wizards of the Coast. Clock Tower is a custom D&D setting and class that I made for my friends and I to play. Then, our producer Hoos and I, as well as a lot of our lovely friends, took that game and turned it into a full-scale production. In Clock Tower, we have a unique character creation system. Each of our players didn't make or design their characters. Instead, they all took a question and answer style test that would determine who their character was, what they looked like, and what version of the Clock Tower agent they would be. Episode one begins with us listening to our player Darby's take this test. While we know that Darby's answers to this test are a character creation system, her character sees it as a dreamlike vision of their path to the Clock Tower. When they reach the Clock Tower, they struggle through more of the test to get to the top, to find an old standing mirror. When looking into the mirror, his reflection seems wrong. Darby, as a player, has to change one aspect of her character's physical appearance, something not determined by the test. Her character sees himself as taller, and the mirror reflects that. Finally seeing his true reflection, he steps through the mirror and into the clock tower. The inside of the clock tower is a large circular room. It seems ominously empty, like a new house or maybe even an abandoned one. Six landmarks dominate the room. The first is a lightly furnished sitting area just in front of the mirror that her character is now standing in. It has a large couch, two chairs, and a small coffee table arranged as if the mirror was the center of attention, much like a TV might be. To the right, is the second, a large indoor balcony with two curved staircases leading up to it. Above and below are rows of large empty bookshelves, creating a small library with only one book, the book Darby's character found on their journey. After inspecting the book, Dog ears a page and returns it to its place. He then approaches the third landmark, a 20-foot tall hourglass. Its sand seems to go on forever and looks as if it isn't sand at all. Instead, when inspected closer, her character sees that the sand is actually stars, worlds, maybe even universes falling through the eye of the hourglass. To the left of the sitting area is the fourth landmark, rows and rows of empty shelves. Tucked in a dark corner of the room, behind the sitting area is the fifth landmark, a wardrobe. It seems unassuming, but scratches on the floor indicate that it may have been moved hundreds of times over. Peering behind it, what looks like a doorframe can be seen. However, Darby's character is unable to move the wardrobe on their own and quickly moves on. Every one of these features, though, are overshadowed, or more accurately, literally illuminated by the last landmark, a massive clock face that dominates one entire section of the circular wall. Directly in front of it is a rough stone stoop etched with eldritch runes that leads up to the clock face as if it were a door. In between this stoop and the hourglass is a short table 
that Darby's character finds a gold pocket watch with Eldritch runes carved into it. His pocket watch. He quickly fixes it to his person and stands on the stoop. Reaching out, he touches the clock face. It's like lightning, but it's not painful. Almost like he's completing some kind of circuit. Hearing the pocket watch weir and seeing the great hands of the clock face wind, they both stop in unison. He realizes something powerful has happened. He just doesn't know what. That is, until he sees the mirror. The reflection had changed to be like looking through a window into a different world. Stepping through it, he finds himself in a medieval town, shoulder to shoulder with three other people who look just as confused as he is. With all the players' characters finally together, they begin introductions. A small, roughly 4-6, androgynous person with fair skin, curly blonde hair, and amber eyes introduces themselves as Sam. They have a large, dark sun hat and an oversized coat that seems well-worn with its pockets stuffed with all manner of junk. A little taller, at around 5-6, is a scruffy man with deeply tanned skin, short, sandy blonde hair, and dark blue eyes. He introduces himself as Jaeger. From his hat to the gun slung on his shoulder, right down to his boots, he seems a little bit like a cowboy. The third is the tallest among them. An androgynous person, about 6'6", with dark skin, long red hair, and piercing blue eyes. They carry a massive sword that is itself Sam's height in length. Unlike the others, this person, as well as Darby's character, both don't seem to know what their names are, or if they ever had names in the first place. Darby's character stands with the others at around 6'3". He has tan skin, black hair, and gray eyes. The weapons he carries are an old flintlock pistol and a serpentine-bladed short sword. Their introductions are cut short when the town they randomly appeared in falls under attack by some kind of abomination. The creature is similar in appearance to an alligator and a centipede. Its horrid, misshapen, pustule-ridden body was clear evidence that it was not of this world, or any world. Worse yet, it was headed right for them. Sam, revealing their weapon, draws forth a short silver pipe. Yes, like a lead pipe, not a smoking pipe. And aims it at the creature. They cast an illusion of themselves and then they run the f away. They're four feet tall. What do you want from them? Jaeger retreats as well, but to a better firing position to lay down cover fire. While screaming to the others in a single word to survive, Parker's character, you know, the one with the big sword, draws it from its sheath, revealing its odd, curved shape, kind of like a pizza knife. Parker, why? What? They run headfirst into battle charging the creature with no fear. Their sword carves a path through the rough packed dirt as though if it were an afterthought. With all of their momentum, they begin to swing the sword towards the beast. The beast grabs their leg, slams them around, throws them into the air, Jaeger misses a shot, shoots them by accident, and then the monster eats them completely. Shortly after, Sam distracts it with their illusions while Darby's character and Jaeger continue to attack the monster. They cut off its heads even as new ones sprout from its place. Eventually, the group whittles the creature down to the size and rough shape of a normal alligator. Darby's character ends the fight with a final, decisive shot. 
The surviving agents all hear the distant chimes of what might be some great bell in the distance and awaken inside the clock tower together. Sitting on the couch, they all realize that they are all intact and unscathed. Even those that had been injured or eaten were sitting there as if none of it had happened. They introduce themselves to each other again, only this time Darby's character says their name is Reagan. Feeling left out, Parker's character workshops a few names with the group before deciding their name is Rock. Because, you know... It's hard to eat a rock, for sure. However, the company wasn't the only new addition to the clock tower. A charcoal sketch of the creature they've just defeated now hung on the wall with the shelves as if it were some kind of trophy. After a brief discussion with the group, Rock walks over to the clock face and, touching it, opens the mirror to another world. A different world beginning their next mission. As they look around, they realize that they've entered some kind of space station in the midst of a hostage situation. Their outfits had changed too, perhaps to fit the world or maybe to make them less noticeable. Regardless of why, they all now vaguely resembled some kind of engineers. As they explore the station, they find a help center with a young person with striking blue hair, working at the desk, looking bored as they read a book. Yet, Still, they seem important to the group. After talking to them, the group learns that their name is Lawrence. Reagan realizes that some kind of coin that he didn't know was there was now figuratively burning a hole in his pocket, as if he was meant to give it to Lawrence. Darby, as a player, knows that this coin represents the use of one of Reagan's limited abilities for this mission. And by giving up the coin, She's exchanging it for information. As such, Reagan gives Lawrence the coin, and the group meets the entity for the first time. Lawrence seems almost possessed. Their eyes look like they reflect thousands of stars. They turn harsh and rude to the party, berating them with insults and telling them that one coin buys one question, so the group should be quick. After a bit of discussion with this entity, the group eventually asks, what is causing the hostage situation on the main deck? To which the entity responds, The thing causing the hostage situation is the person you are here to collect their weaponry. After their conversation finishes, Lawrence apologizes to them for spacing out, and the group bids them farewell as they explore the station. Their exploration leads them to a chance meeting with a station guard named Ron. They deceive Ron into helping them gain access into a restricted area. After a comedy of errors in which the group fails to continue their deception, as well as revealing that they are heavily armed, Ron sends them all back to the clock tower in record time. I trusted you. That was the first time they failed their mission. After waking up in the clock tower, touching the clock face, and moving through the mirror, they all start their mission over from where they first entered the space station. The only difference being one of Reagan's two clock tower coins remains spent. The group then proceeds to split up, lie to a bunch of people, get lost, and run out of time. They start their mission. Uh, again. Reagan's clock tower coin, still spent. Eventually, after lying their way all the way down to the head engineer, they manage to get a job that will take them straight to the main deck to fix the blast shields in the midst of the hostage situation. The captain of the guard gives them all armored vests and sends what he thinks are engineers to be ready to fix the blast shield when the assailant's demands are met. 
However, seconds after they enter the room, Jaeger and the assailant make eye contact. And then Jaeger shoots him. The battle begins with Jaeger critically wounding the assailant, and the rest of the group backs him up and attacks the man as well. However, Reagan misses his first shot and weakens the blast shield significantly. The attacks continue with the exception of Sam, who seems against this course of action. What the towers near we all doing? Sam, instead, chooses to do what they can to help the hostages, who don't understand magic and are only confused by this. Rock bravely charges forward, readying their blade as they reach the wounded man. Rock is quickly dodged, grabbed, tossed almost effortlessly into the wall. Despite the battle, the dialogue between the clock tower agents and this man seems to reveal that he knew that they would be coming for him and that he might know something about who or what they are, which piques their interest because they don't know who or what they are. Unfortunately, the battle ultimately concludes with the man shooting the blast shield one more fatal time, sucking them all into the silent oblivion of space. But not before Reagan saw a look in the man's eyes. Reagan didn't understand, but knew would haunt him for a long time. They end up all completely healed on the couch again. Rock feels like their pride in battle and in themselves was wounded by the careless way they were tossed. He threw me like I was nothing. I'm going to kill this man. Rock starts the mission with a vengeance. They begin their mission again, as players stating that the characters do all of their actions the same, and end up back at the moment where Jaeger wounds the man. Reagan starts questioning the man immediately this time, which only seems to cause the man to target him specifically. However determined he is, though, the agents continue to unleash hell on this man. Rock, specifically, bravely charges forward, readying their blade. As they reach the wounded man, they slice him deeply across the chest, stepping past him as they do. And even as Jaeger tells the man to surrender, the man shoots Reagan and Rock slams his heavy blade through the man's back and out his ribcage. Sam tries to stop Reagan's bleeding while the station's security breaks through the door. Rock rips his sword out of the man's back and then bends down to pick up their enemy's weaponry, a small silver gun. As Rock stands with it in their hands, the entire group hears the distant chiming and wakes up again on the couch in the clock tower. The mission was over, and the gun added to the shelf of trophies. The group, however, is less united. Rock feels accomplished. In their opinion, slaying the assailant saved lives. One bad soul to save multiple innocent ones. And they accomplished their mission. Jaeger is less sure of their actions, choosing to believe that despite their questionable choices, in the end, the mission is what matters. Sam is almost outraged. They believe that life, regardless of circumstance, means something, and that if taking a life is how they had to finish their mission, then they aren't the good guys Sam thought they were. Lastly, Reagan's opinions fall somewhere between all of them. Reagan is glad they saved lives, and that they completed their mission, but still, carries the weight that it wasn't without cost, stating that they aren't the good guys. They're just people. And a soul, regardless of circumstance, is still a soul. Whatever missions might be on the horizon for the party, it's clear that everything is not as simple as it seems. Join us on September 4th for Episode 6, The Gray City, Part 1. Till then, time's ticking. See you in the clock tower. <laughs>